0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Shelby Hinsey. Welcome to the podcast, Shelby.
1: Thanks for having me. Very excited.
0: Shelby is somebody I got to know through Twitter. And we've been friends on Twitter for a while. And then Shelby invited me as a producer at KSL, along with Calvin Burke, to be on the Doug Wright show, one of the weeks of Pride Month, to just talk a little bit about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And I, I just saw what you're doing as a career and we visited a little bit about your job as a release society president. You would just been released and the things you're sharing on Twitter. And I just thought, I think our listeners need to hear more from Shelby.
1: I have a lot of opinions.
0: <laughs> good. This is a good platform for that because we have plenty of time, but I think just as an overview for our listeners, um, Shelby is an lat- active Latter-day Saint, I think I inferred that because of her assignment as a YSA Relief Society president. She is disabled, so we'll talk about her journey at being disabled. We'll talk about her feelings about the church, about women's roles in the church. Um, we'll talk about her career and how she landed this job and is doing such a great job at KSL. We'll talk about other people that are walking difficult roads Um, single people, women, LGBTQ, and just her insights into the gospel of Jesus Christ to help everybody. And um, so we just pray a good spirit here. We offered a prayer before we started. Um, And my feeling is Shelby um, has some really helpful things that will, by the end of this podcast, you go, that's a couple of awesome nuggets and a new perspective or validate how people feel. And just to hear other people like Shelby that feel the same way. Anything you'd like to add as an introduction, Shelby?
1: Oh, I think you covered most of that. Um, just very, uh, very online. That's my other, my other claim to fame, I guess you will. Is just like, like Twitter.
0: Tell us, our listeners, how to find you on Twitter.
1: Yeah, so I am at Shelby Hensy um, on Twitter. I I changed my name recently because I was like, I should be more professional and have my whole name. And then I just kept posting the same goofy stuff that I was before. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me on Twitter.
0: And that's how somehow we connected. And that's a wonderful community there that it's a tough community sometimes because there's a bit of, um, divisiveness if I use that word correctly, but there's yeah. also great communities there of people coming together and supporting each other.
1: Totally. It's been, um, I've been on Twitter since it started you wow. know, 10 years ago um, and it was at the beginning, just something that me and my friends used to just keep each other updated of what we were doing. Um, but in college, it's when I kind of started using it as a platform to connect with people that had similar and different interests and to learn more about other people. And it's been amazing the uh, just how it's helped shape some and given me vocabulary to a lot of the things that. I had been feeling or thinking, um, but didn't quite know how to express, um, you know, a lot of those things that you read and you're like, oh, I've always known this and I've always felt this, but I've never been able to put it into words. And, um, so it's been a great opportunity for me in lots of different aspects of my life.
0: It's it's really good. And you're one of the first, um, disabled guests I've had. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about yeah. your, your disability yeah. and just a little bit about your story?
1: So I have um, a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, it uh, falls under the umbrella of muscular dystrophy. And it's not the same, but it is um, funded often. the same, like Research is funded um, typically through the same uh, channels. Um, it's a genetic disease that is um, basically just makes uh, my muscles weaker um, than most people. And there are different levels of it. I have a pretty mild form. Um, there's a lot of time. it can be um, the more, uh, more severe forms can be pretty deadly for children. Um, but for me, it's just more of a, um, you know, I, don't have like a shortened lifespan or, you know, those kinds of things. It's just, um, makes everyday life a little, e- a little more difficult. Um, I describe myself as, uh, disabled. I don't personally say, um, a lot of people use person first language, which is to say, you know, they are a person with a disability. Um, I think that we have moved past the point of needing to speak like that. Um, I identify as disabled. It's a part of my life, Um, just as being a woman or being LDS or being a producer. um, I think a lot of times we try to sugarcoat disability or erase it as part of somebody's identity, Um, and I don't want to look at it that way. It's part of who I am. Um, It doesn't define me, just as none of those other things define me either. Um, but it is part of my life. It is something that I have to deal with. Um, I also think the way that we think and talk about disability needs to change um, in that I personally feel much more disabled by my environment than I do my body.
0: That's will you say that again?
1: I feel much more disabled by my environment and society and perception of me than I do my actual physical body. Um, and
0: yeah, explain that. That's I think yeah. I'm loving what you're going to teach right yeah.
1: here. So this is, we're going to get a little academic here for a Good. second. Um, there's t- t- uh, several different models of viewing disability, but um, one is the medical model, which is looking at disability as um, something that needs to be cured or changed or fixed, um, which often, you know, is the case, you know, that's, it's not to say you shouldn't look at disability that way. Um, because there are things we can medically be doing to make people's lives better. Um, and if we don't look at that, then we're not making progress and using, um, the brains and the, uh, abilities that God has given us. But there's also the social model, which is looking at, You know, environment, how we perceive disability and how we, you know, for me personally, I could get into a building just fine if there's a ramp and if there's stairs, I'm not disabled by my body. I'm disabled by that set of stairs.
0: That's very helpful.
1: Um, I I should also mention I do use a wheelchair. I don't, I didn't say that. Um, So I use a power wheelchair and I have my entire life. So I've kind of, my whole 27 years basically have been um, using a wheelchair and living in an environment that is very, very slowly um, becoming more conducive. Um, I'm only two years younger than the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which was signed actually the end of July in 1990. Wow. Wow. Um, so that was a landmark. Um,
0: You've been disabled your whole life, Shelby? Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, so the ADA was a landmark civil rights bill. We think of it a lot of times as like building requirements. Yeah. Um, but really it was a civil rights bill. Um, that is also the bare minimum. And so I believe that as we change the way we think about disability, um, especially just as, the baby boomer generation gets older. There are going to be more and more people who are disabled and need those accommodations. Um, and as we change the way we think about it, we'll become much more accepting of disability as just a part of life, um, just like any other um, marginalized community. Um, it's the only marginalized community that anybody can join at any time in their life, um, which I think is you know i don't want to like guilt people into being like you, know, you could be disabled one day so That's you need to think about it but it is true Um, it's also the large one of the largest marginalized community one in five people um, according to the 2010 census one in five people identify as having a disability and i imagine that number will go up here when we have our next census
0: you said something really interesting it said it's a marginalized group that you may find yourself in that you're not in right now. I, so if I'm white, it's probably hard to imagine myself becoming black. Right. Now, I'm a man. It's hard to imagine myself becoming female, but yeah, you're right. I could become part of this marginalized group. And then I love what you said. And if I understand it, right. Uh, my ability to contribute to society is only controlled by the environment, not by right. me. And so if we're creating barriers do you fully contribute to a society by the environment, then we're worse off.
1: Right. There are so many things that um, I could do with the proper in physical built environment, the proper support, um, the proper technology that, and we shut a lot of people out of um, employment, um, just general being involved in the society um, it was just in, it was 96 that the Supreme Court ruled that disabled people have just as much of a right to live in their homes and in a community as non-disabled people do. Um, you know, moving away from institutionalization and the and nursing homes and those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, if you look at people with, um, autistic people or people with um, intellectual disabilities as well. I mean, I'm speaking for myself in a very, I'm also in a very privileged group of disabled people.
0: Explain that. Um,
1: I am white. I am able to physically speak for myself. Um, I don't like to say that people aren't able to speak for themselves because everyone is able to communicate somehow. It's just, are we willing to pay attention and learn how they communicate with us. Um, I am. I grew up fairly, um, you know, middle class. I never had to worry that you know a medical emergency was going to make my family homeless. Um, wow. You know those kinds of things. Um, I'm sure my parents worried about that a little bit more than <laughs> I did. Um, but you know that was never the thought of you know can I afford this, you know, um, can I afford to get a new wheelchair? That was never really, you know, it's not something you want to spend money on, but it was Uh, never like top of mind concern. So I have a lot of privilege in that as well.
0: That's interesting. It's very helpful for me because I would just, I wouldn't think, I wouldn't understand that, but you're right. And, And
1: I think, you know, something that, we were talking earlier about all of the different issues that we were going to come over and um, talk about. And every single issue has a disability uh, part of it as well. And so remembering that, you know, every community, every marginalized community um, has disabled people in it as well. And what are we doing to make sure that, you know, we're accepting that those people as well in, um, in that discussion?
0: What were your when you were? Did you have really hard times as a younger person, thinking how am I going to contribute to life? What am I going to do for a career? Will will I ever have value in society? Because right now you're, it's what you're doing is really awesome. Right. And we're going to talk more about that. And I ask that question partly to give hope to younger people that you know, maybe need to hear what your your example and to give them hope.
1: Right. Um. I mean, first of all, I want to say that no one's worth or value is defined by their ability to what we define as contribute to society That's which is which is having a job if you if it is hard for you to maintain a job because of physical mental emotional um, that doesn't mean that you are not contributing or there are not ways that you can contribute to society, and I think that's if we can get away from the idea of you know work is the only way that you can contribute, um, that is very helpful. First of all, um, you know people contribute in you can you can do lots of different things to make the world around you better without getting a paycheck. Um, so I think if we think about that first of all, um. And I didn't always think that. That was something that I actually learned a lot on Twitter and from those discussions within the disability community. Um, But then um, for me personally, I have always just kind of been um, precocious, I guess. I was very like, I, I know people say like, don't say... Little girls are bossy, but I was bossy. good. Um, and I just always kind of knew what I wanted and what I needed, and i had I'm very grateful that I had parents and teachers who allowed me to you know say what I needed and ask for help and not feel bad about that. Um, of course, I still did. Um I think that that's really hard to. And um, get over, but for me, fortunately, I think I had a lot of those harder times when I was younger, and then I was able to kind of move past a lot of that um feeling like like a burden. I don't feel like that anymore um and nobody ever made me purposely feel that way, but I think we always do, um but I've definitely come to a point in my life where I'm like no i'm i'm a I'm allowing people I'm giving people opportunities to observe um to make money and helping me and um, those kinds of things so I look at it a lot of the things that I think we can change if we just change our perspective a little bit um, and looking at how can we make this an opportunity and not a
0: problem I like that and I like a little bit of a subtle suggestion you may have given me there you. Um, cause I defined your success as a disabled person by, and for you, it is maybe becoming a producer and being able to do these things, but you were careful to say that's not everybody's road. Right. And I liked what you said that you need to feel, um, like you're complete and doing what you're supposed to do, even if you're not doing what I'm doing as a disabled person, every disabled person has their own path. And there's wonderful ways, especially with an online community or, um, I'm thinking of a podcast I did do, episode 150 with Maggie Slight. If you're listening, Maggie, we didn't really talk about your disability too much. But, you know, I look at you and how you're contributing to society with what you're doing as a writer. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of, I like that idea that not everybody's path is a societal norm, perhaps. Totally. And how we measure success by a career, a sort of a traditional career.
1: Right. And and I would you know if there's somebody who is listening that you know wants to learn how to navigate you know the academic world and the career world you know totally reach out to me and I'd be happy to help you kind of navigate some of those things um, because there are some unique challenges um, but it is doable um, and if that's the road you you know want to take I'm happy to help but yeah looking at you know, defining success for yourself of what that, what that looks like. And, and it's going to be different for everybody and not, um, comparing, you know, my success to somebody else's. I worry a lot of times about people looking at me and saying, well, she could do it. Why can't you? And That's I, interesting. going back to, you know, I've had a lot of privilege in my life that has allowed me to be where I am. Um, and I, think it's important to recognize that, um, you know, I've had to deal with a lot of really hard things too, and I don't want to diminish that either, um, but recognizing that there are a lot of things in my life that have helped me to get to where I am.
0: I remember when I first met you at KSL, um, We'd I'd known you on Twitter, and I you may have talked about your disability on Twitter, but I didn't pick up on it. I, and just because Twitter's hard to pick up on everything and I didn't know you were disabled. Mm-hmm. And I walked into KSL, we were going to do that segment and, and I don't know, I don't know if it caught me off guard or
1: you wouldn't no, be the actually, first person.
0: Actually, I met you at Olympus high. So that's not true. I'd met you at, yeah. um, and an I mean, there
1: were a ton of people there.
0: And so I do remember you there, but, um, and I don't know where my mind went with that. I, you know, uh, I, I don't think I said anything, right? <laughs> which is probably good. Like, I don't, I mean, what I didn't, but I didn't ask you at that point to tell me your story. I just saw you as the KSL producer. Right. Which
1: was that appropriate. It was very competent
0: <laughs> to to accomplish the things we needed to do in that segment. And then right. you spent some time with um, Cal and I just talking after the segment was done about what you do here. And, and so that's kind of what we did. Um and I didn't ever at that point ask you about your story. Any just thoughts as people are first meeting a disabled person, sort of the things they should or shouldn't do.
1: Totally. Um, well, it's funny that you said that it kind of caught you off guard because I have seen a lot of kind of, oh, surprised faces oh when I come <laughs> into the. And you this. know
0: you're reading their face. I, and
1: I mean, you cannot hide it. So I know what you're thinking. Um, but I think for me, um. The, And this is an interesting discussion, even like um, within like dating as well. And, um, you know, people are curious and they want to know more about people. But I often introduce it as, you know, if you met somebody for the first time, you know, would one of the first questions you ask them, is it complex medical history? Like, no. Um, obviously, it's something that I want to talk about. And I want to um make sure people understand, because and this is something that I'm personally like still trying to navigate and figure out, you know how how do I um talk about my disability without it being the only thing that I talk about um, because there are so many other interesting things about me, I hope, um, and things that I'm interested in um I definitely think, you know, the most important thing you can do when meeting somebody is, um, you know, just talk to them like you would a normal person. one of my big things that I encourage people to do is to presume competence. And something that's really frustrating for me is I'll, you know, be at the store and I'll be with, you know, somebody who's there to help me. um, But the cashier will talk to them instead of to me, um, or I'll go to the doctor's office. And I've literally been at the doctor's once and I, it was at a big hospital and I asked the receptionist, you know, where this clinic was. And she, I was with my mom and she turned to my mom and I answered to my mom. I'm like, I'm the one who asked that question. Wow. Um, so I always encourage people to presume competence and presume that the person that you're talking to, understands and knows what you're saying. Um and if they don't, I mean, I personally believe that basically everybody does and we just haven't figured out how to maybe help them communicate more. Um but you know people and people know people pick up on even if they don't understand what you're saying, they pick up on the way that you, you treat them. Um, so if you just assume that they know and they are you know with it and here and present, um, that's gonna get you a lot further, and you're gonna make that person feel a lot better. Um, and then, you know, if the person that's their assistant that's with them needs to step in to help communicate some things or things like that, you know, let them be the person who guides that um but yeah just assume presuming that they are present and involved in the conversation and um, and then as you get to know people just like you would with any other person you know thing you start to learn things about people and i think also saying um you know is there in the very beginning is there some something i should know that i can do to help make it easier for you to you know go to this event something i love is when people say you know okay how how can I make sure that this place that we're going is accessible? what do I need to ask, or what do I need to do and taking some of that burden off of me um, is very much appreciated because um, it's a lot of spending a lot of time thinking about, okay, how is the logistics of getting from A to B and those kinds of things and if I, I had a friend once who called me to go to a party and she said we were going to do it here but I called them and they're not accessible so we're going to go to this place and just the I mean that was so simple for her to do um but the fact that she did it and I didn't have to say oh well is this, it, can I get into this place or have to do the like google search and hope that there's a picture of the front and I can figure it out the fact that she just took that initiative was And I told her once, I was like, I'm so grateful for you doing that. And she's like, I don't even remember doing that. It was something so small to her, but really large for me. Um, So just, I think, you know, treating people how you would normally, but then being extra cognizant of some of the things that might make life a little bit difficult. And just asking, what can I do to help make this easier for you? And if they say nothing, then that's you know don't push the subject um but making sure that they recognize that you are cognizant of you know that they there are things that make things a little difficult and you're willing you're willing to work through those and you're willing to change plans and you're a safe person for me to say hey you know actually that restaurant that you want to go to isn't accessible can we go somewhere else um it's really, uh, I think, one of the most beneficial things you can do.
0: Do you know the restaurants that are accessible and your favorite food?
1: Um, I know a lot of them. Um, and I do a lot of still just Googling. Um, it's hard to call someplace and ask if they're accessible because oftentimes they'll just say yes. And, and then you get there. and They're not. <laughs> um, so I use a lot of Google Street View. That's and smart. trying to figure out, okay, um, you know, is that actually accessible? A lot of people will say, oh, well, it's just one step. You know, we can lift your chair up and my chair weighs 300 pounds and isn't designed to be lifted. That's, isn't
0: designed to be lifted.
1: That's not, you know, for some people they can do that, um, but that doesn't work for me. And that's the other thing I think thinking about, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, might be accessible to one person, but isn't to another um, so really listening to when people say, oh, I can't do that, and just accepting that that's...
0: And there may be more to the story. So people say, want to know why, and then they'll want to lift up your wheelchair. Right. Where you'd actually prefer people not to do that. Right. It might damage your wheelchair.
1: It's very expensive.
0: <laughs> so and, you'd actually... and
1: I don't want somebody else to get hurt either.
0: And so maybe that's good just to take that at face value and right. not sort of have to have you justify. Right.
1: Well, I, so I I personally don't drive... I might have an accessible van that I can get into, but I have somebody else drive it. And I have people ask me all the time, like, you know, well, why don't you drive? Because, you know, I have a friend who does and, you know, there's, I have lots of reasons and just trust that, you know, I know what's best for me and best for my life. And, you know, what I'm willing, like getting an accessible van is an incredibly difficult process. And to me, I'm like, I don't want to put my energy into that. I'd rather use my energy Smart. to do something else. And, you know, this system works for me. And so just accept that I know what, it, what works best for me. And, um, it's and very, that's I've got that through.
0: I wrote down and circled this phrase you said, presume competence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's really awesome because I would guess that at times I've seen a disabled person and have, have not presumed competence. And I like your examples. And I'm thinking of a state conference I went to Emerson First in the Long Beach East Stake, and he had a divorced woman speak. He had, it may have been one of his counselor's daughters who was in her teens who's disabled, and she spoke, but she wasn't able to speak right. the way you spoke. And it was you know, but we heard her voice through a computer, and she right. was—you probably know the technology. Yeah. And I was—I so I will never forget that Shelby because I realized that I had not presumed competence mm-hmm. because she couldn't speak. And when I heard her speak through that computer, all of us during that state conference were just were deeply touched. Right.
1: Um. All right. I follow a father who has on Twitter, who has a son who has Down syndrome, and he is nonverbal, but they figured out ways to communicate his needs through, you know, sign language, just watching his facial expressions. Um, you know, and that's been really important for me to see, like, you know, everybody has something to offer and something to contribute. And, and it's up to us to figure out how, and take the time and the, be patient and be humble enough to listen to them.
0: Any more things you want to share with us about this road being disabled? Um, before? And I'd love to kind of transition into what you're doing, how you got to KSL and yeah. the producer.
1: Um, I mean, this is something that I could talk about all day. Um, but I do want to talk about other things as well. Um, I think, you know, just kind of overall, I, and I've said it earlier, you know, just changing the way that we think about disability. Um, and I think a lot of times in the church, especially, I mean, this is everywhere, but it's magnified in the church. We talk about disability as either a blessing or a burden. There is no middle ground of This is just a part of life and people. And um, I I remember um, once just sitting in one of my first um, women's conferences. And I don't remember the talk. I don't remember who gave it. I don't remember what the story was. But I just remember sitting there crying and thinking, you know, this isn't representative of my life. I can always tell. In a talk when like a disabled story is coming, and um, we call that inspiration porn a lot of times <laughs> um which I joke is like Mormon's favorite kind of porn um, <laughs> but the idea of you know using disability as a plot device or as something to um you know obviously we need to look at other people's challenges and the way that they work through them, I don't like to say overcome because. I don't think you overcome things, and you know you work through them, Um, and we need to look at that. But making sure that we're not looking at somebody whose life is harder than our or what we perceive as harder than ours, and using it as a um, a gratitude crutch of well, at least you know my life isn't that bad. Because who does that help? Um, My friend Tanisha on Twitter said once something along those lines of you know if you have to look at other people's if you have to compare your life to other people's in order to be gra- grateful then that's not really gratitude it's helpful um so it's- and i mean there's i would encourage people to go look up um there's an amazing ted talk by um stella young it's called i'm not your inspiration um it's incredible but basically she tells a story of um teaching at a high school. She was like substitute teaching. And one of the kids raised his hand. She was, you know, 20 minutes into the lesson. And he goes, When are you gonna start your speech? She's like, What are you talking about? And he said, You know, sometimes, you know, usually when somebody in a wheelchair comes in, they, you know, give us an inspirational speech. And he had never seen her, somebody with a disability, as just a normal person it was he'd only ever seen them as objects of inspiration or pity. And so I want to make sure that you know as we you know view our siblings on this earth that we're not we're not looking at anybody as purely an object of inspiration or pity um, because it's also exhausting to be that object of inspiration and not allowing people to um I've definitely felt like I can't say, you know, this doesn't work for me or I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Um, Especially within the church because people will think, well, you know, now you're, we call it like a bad cripple. Um, The people that, you know, make complaints about things. And we should allow people to be able to be honest about what they're really going through and have moments of, hard times and not just have to be constantly positive and happy. And, and we put a lot of burden on people, I think, um, that are going through all sorts of hard things. We put this burden on them. We say, wow, they're so amazing for being so positive and happy all the time and not allowing them the space to also grieve and be upset and be angry about things. Um, and, We do that with lots of people, not just the disability community. Um, But giving people the space to feel and um, help take on some of that burden of, uh, you know, living in a very real world with very real challenges.
0: That's very helpful to me. And I realize I'm learning some things. I did a podcast with two Black guys last week uh-huh. they talked about racism within the church their temple workers and I got uncomfortable a little bit cuz I realized I was learning and being uncomfortable I think is a good thing
1: oh I just wish and I so, wish so much that people would be okay with being uncomfortable um I love um oh gosh who said it oh it was in a pod, it was in an article and um, it's Nicole Chung um, an article by Nicole Chung um, for The Toast from years ago. But she talks about how, um, and she's Asian, and she was at a uh, her husband, who is white, his family dinner. And somebody made a joke about, you know, her looking like every other Asian person. And, you know, they meant it as a joke, and it, they didn't mean to be harmful or mean or anything. But she felt really uncomfortable with it. And in that moment, she had to decide, you know, do I be the person who ruins this dinner party by calling out, you know, this person who didn't mean any harm, but also needs to learn that what they said was offensive. Um, And ultimately, she didn't. But the point of the article was talking about, you know, why is it always the person who calls somebody out for something? Why are they the ones that have then, you know, quote, ruined the party instead of the person who said it to begin with. Um, And also just this idea of, um, you know, making putting that discomfort back on other people sometimes and being willing to take that discomfort and, you know, don't get defensive and being humble enough to say, you know, you're right. I didn't realize, you know, thank you for explaining to me that, you know, hearing that all the time would get really old. I have people say things to me, anything that you think is funny. I have heard so many times, And wow. uh, you know, people always, Oh, are you, you know, you got a you got a license for that thing. Um, so I've come back, come up with some kind of just snarky responses that, you know, are funny, but also say, you know, but that also isn't very funny. And I've heard it a million times. I usually just say like, You know, that gets funnier every single time somebody says it. And that's that's my way of saying,
0: think about that. Not
1: funny, dude. Uh, It's usually a dude. Um, But yeah, being being willing to be uncomfortable and to accept some of that discomfort from our fellow beings and not having them telling them that they have to carry that discomfort exclusively. I mean, that's why we're here. Is to you know mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and what can we do to take some of that burden from them?
0: I want to go back to um, a phrase you said that just so I understand it. Maybe our listeners um, want to come back to it too because I'm learning here. Object of inspiration, mm-hmm. and so that's like where a talk or somebody and they el they sort of elevate was the word I was going to use. A disabled person and that become sort of an object of inspiration for others. And I think what you're helping me understand is you don't want to be an object of inspiration or pity. You just want to be a fellow human being right. who's seen on your own merits and not defined by your disability. Is that?
1: Well, and I think a lot of times, you know, I I want people to recognize that, uh, you know, I have different challenges in my life and we need to look at that. But a lot of times what happens with these Objects of inspiration is you just look at that and say, Oh, that's nice. Or I'm so sad for them. Or I'm so grateful that I don't have to deal with that. And then you move on with your life. Instead of saying, Wow, here is this person who is experiencing something that I am not experiencing. It's not harder. It's not easier or better or worse. It's just different. Um, What can I be doing to? Make sure that I am making their life a little easier. And if you're looking at that, I think that's an appropriate response. Um, you know am i am I voting for politicians who have a disability and um, have a plan to help disabled people, or am I voting for politicians who are actively working to take away health care? Um, am I I'm a business owner. Is my business accessible in every way that I can make it accessible? Um, I'm a teacher. Am I making sure that the students in my classroom are learning about disability? Um, You know, whether you have a disabled student in your class or not, you know, are they learning about disability? I'm a parent. Am I, you know, is am I exposing my children? To disabled people, or is you know, seeing that person in line at target the first time they've ever seen somebody in a wheelchair. You know, if you have this, you know, an eight-year-old kid and they've never seen somebody in a wheelchair, you know, you need to be examining what media are you exposing them to and how are you talking about people. So I don't ever want to say, you know, you should only ever look at disabled people and treat them exactly the same as you would anybody else, because they you know, they are the exact same because we are and we have different challenges, not harder, better, worse, just different. Um, and if you're going to be inspired by somebody with a disability, let it lead to action and not just a passing, oh, that made my heart feel good. And now I'm going to move on with my life. What are you going to actually do with that inspiration?
0: It's very helpful. I'm thinking a little bit of Eric Huntsman who has an autistic son and did a podcast and he taught me about a platitude, a word I've heard that I never really understood. And he talked about when people, when he realized he had an autistic son, people would say, well, this is just for your good and this will bring your family closer together. And he was angry that people didn't fully sort of want to emotionally understand the difficult road that this was for his son and him. And I wonder if I do that sometimes. You know, I don't want I just want to say a quick platitude towards you, Shelby. Well you're doing great in your career and everything's wonderful because you seem to be doing great and all disabled so my responsibility to disabled people is sort of say this is for your good. This is part of God's plan. Oh gosh. Without yeah. (laughs) yeah, without sort of being willing to understand uh, and not just dismiss this world with a quick platitude. Right. And just fully engage and understand, especially if I have, and maybe all of us have responsibility as baptized members of the church to mourn, bear, and comfort. But I was thinking particularly if I have a leadership responsibility, if you're in my ward or if I'm a Relief Society president or a young women's president and have disabled people in my stewardship responsibility, what am I going to do?
1: Right. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, this is a topic that has, so much nuance. And you know, I'm speaking for myself, and I hope for a lot of other people who maybe have never been given the vocabulary to speak like this. Um I mean, there are people that will disagree with me. Um, but I hope that they can at least start thinking that way a little bit. Um, and you I think the most important thing you can be doing is actually listening to disabled people, and um, you know parents of disabled people have their own unique challenges, um but we often center them as the story. Um, that's something I mean we just do everywhere and um, but really listening to you know when we can the actually disabled people um, and taking their you know, what they say as, you know, a little bit more of a understanding of their actual situation. Um, It's a lot of times, you know, we'll say, well, I have a, you know, a cousin who has a kid whose nephew is disabled and they say something different and just really allowing people to be honest with their own experiences and listening to them.
0: And I think it takes great discipline to do what you said, because if you might if i might become your trusted friend and you might open up a little bit to me about your road to disabled person it might just give i might just turn that conversation to somebody else that i know that's disabled right. and so instead of fully listening to you and asking follow up questions and staying present for your story i sort of pivot from your story and say well my third cousin's disabled and right. and maybe i do that to identify but i i i miss a chance right And I miss a chance to probably bear more in comfort by hearing your story. And then you may not feel heard and it's not particularly helpful for you to hear just another disabled person's story through a non-disabled person. Right.
1: And I think, you know, there's opportunities to say, you know, Hey, well, I you know know somebody who went through something similar, you know, can I share their experience? Maybe that would be helpful to you. And, you know, and I might say, you know, I've, Thought this through a lot, and I know what I need to do, and you know, so you know, that's great for them. But I'm just going to stick with what I've decided, or, or it might be helpful. But just asking that question too, I think we, in any regard, we do that a lot of times. Of, I know, I personally, I am like, let me give you advice, and I love giving people advice, but I've had to really learn how to say, you know, can I share this experience that I went through? That I hope might be helpful or similar to you before just unloading and, you know, being asking for consent, basically, to share that experience before.
0: How do people bring God into this that's helpful and not helpful as far as you having a disability? Yeah. Because I assume there's real triggering things that I could say when I sort of bring God into this mm-hmm. equation.
1: Um, this is going to get a little gospel according to Shelby.
0: Okay, we can handle um, that.
1: I personally, I don't love when people say to me like, "Oh, well, one day your body is going to be perfect, and you're going to be able to do all the things that you wanted to do, um, and you'll be resurrected into a perfect body." And I kind of think, to me, I like my body, and I, and that's something I, I'm, you know, not a hundred percent there yet. I think just as women especially is always an issue. And then you add a disability on top of it. Um, but I don't think that my body isn't perfect. And I think that it's how it's supposed to be. Um, and I am I'm not gonna speculate of what you know my resurrected body is going to or isn't going to look like. Um, but I think that our perceptions are going to change. And I personally believe that my body as it is will be perceived as perfect by others as opposed to, you know, being actually what we describe on this earth as perfect. And I mean, first of all, if you just go through history, the idea of a perfect body has changed so much just over the past thought of that (laughs) i mean and And from culture to culture (laughs) totally and i'm really interested in like the history of fashion so just the idea of what a perfect silhouette is i mean just even over the past you can go decade to decade over the past hundred years and the silhouette of what a perfect female body is has changed every 10 years um so obviously we're we're willing to change our perception of what is perfect or what is good. Um, and I think that that's going to be a lot more um, of what our resurrected bodies are going to be. You know, obviously, I hope that I believe that, you know, we won't necessarily have pain and sickness. Um, and I hope that there are some things that, you know, I would love to be able to do here that I will be able to do Um in that resurrected body that happens, but, um, I, yeah, I truly believe. So it's, it's very hurtful to me, actually, when people say, you know, your body will one day be perfect because I think that's fairly perfect as it is. And, um, and I, it's hard for me to have people say that, and I don't think they say it maliciously, but that they want me changed. Um, I want to just be how I am. And, you know, I don't, people always ask like, okay, if this is a conversation within the disability community, you have somebody said, here's a cure, you know, would you take it? And I don't know, but I would hope that I would be able to say, you know, I want to just be who I am. And, and I believe that, you know, God gave me this body for a reason. And, um, I have certain things that I need to learn and teach other people. Um, I focus more on you know what do I need to learn because that's what I can control. Um, but you know what can I be learning? What can I be contributing? Um, in this body that was a gift to me, that I love.
0: I'm really touched by what you said. I've never heard anybody talk like that, and it just feels so good to me. It feels so right, and I love how you got here, Shelby. I don't, the spiritual maturity, the emotional maturity, the education to be at peace and grateful for who you are and your gifts and contributions. And I love this idea that, you know, that you're not, you know, you don't want to lose that in the resurrection. And I think the the core of the resurrection to me is hope. And so I would hope that whatever your hopes are for your physical body, um, that, That becomes reality. Right. And um, I think sometimes it kind of comes back to this plat. or I want to keep myself emotionally safe. So I just, I think, well, the resurrection is going to make you, you know, without a disability. And it's sort of maybe back to this, you're not complete until the next life, or you're not fully. And and I realized... Some people are looking forward to the resurrection to right. take the disability away. So you're really good at honoring every story. And this is just your story, but it's helpful for me yeah. to hear you talk like that. And I recognize what, what I should do as your friend is is listen to how you feel. And and so I can support you.
1: And And I want to be really clear too, that, you know, I'm saying all of this and these are all the things that I believe and hope, but there are definitely times where I, you know, Think oh, this would be so much easier if it would my be. life was different, or you know, and and I want to make sure that people um have the space and the ability to you know have those pity parties and to be upset and to be annoyed and want to change things and and that's okay, but without being um sucked into that and you know only thinking that way. Um, there's we there's so much nuance in life and we want to just assign people and tell people that they need to be one certain way all the time. And that's just not, that's not how people grow. That's not how people learn. Um, it's not how things change. You know, the only way things change is people asking questions and, you know, saying, I want something different. Um, but then, you know, also just being comfortable enough to say, well, this is how it is right now, and this is what I'm gonna. I'm gonna work with what I have right now.
0: Talk about what you said. Sometimes I get angry. Is that focused at God? focused at our society? Is it where does that move around? And I, my feeling is, it's okay to be angry. Totally. I would never say don't feel angry. I just think that's a logical emotion. Yeah. I would never try to shut that down from somebody.
1: Right. Um, I personally don't get that angry. With God, but I think that if you need to, I love um i heard I've heard this several times, like you know if you need to be angry, be angry with God, they can take it um and I like that idea that you know you can you can release some of that frustration, and that's okay um for me i'm if I'm ever angry, which I am quite often um. It is more with society and the slowness that we're moving um in lots of different aspects and I have to re- I have to remind myself that you know we're fighting a system you know um, from lots of different levels that has been in place for millennia, and we want it to change now um and while I think we have the capacity and the ability to change now um Have to be a little bit patient, as hard as that is, um, and you know, use this time to say, okay, how can we? The world isn't perfect for a lot of people, so what can we be doing to make it a little bit more perfect? And you know, as people who are in those marginalized groups and without that, without them, how do we, you know, take what we have right now and make it at least a little better while also fighting for more meaningful and permanent change.
0: Talk a little bit about, and I'm glad we've spent so much, we spent a good chunk of this podcast Mm -hmm. on um, disability. Very helpful for me and very helpful for our listeners. Maybe we'll have you come back on the podcast and share more, (laughs) because you're a pretty awesome guest.
1: I have have lots of ideas.
0: Um, Talk about women in the church. So you're an active LDS woman. And sometimes, you know, I've tried to want to hear more stories from women so that I can do better as a man right? Um, to make sure women are valued and appreciated. Just share us, share just your thoughts on that subject. Maybe mm-hmm. it isn't just for men. Maybe it's for everybody. Right. I'm just making sure everybody's, I don't know the right way to phrase it up. Every voices are equally valued or everybody right. feels equally needed. You right. Know, whatever way you want to phrase that up.
1: Um, so there are like two things that I've actually been thinking a lot about recently. Um, and the first is, um, are we elevating women, um, in leadership roles? Um, and are we, I think a lot of times we have this idea of women can teach women and children and men teach everybody. Um, are we allowing, are we listening to women's voices?
0: That's a, that's one, that's a powerful, sometimes you say something, Shelby, I just want to stop. (laughs) And that's, I've never thought of that. I've never, that's a blind spot for me as a guy. I've never thought about what you just said.
1: Yeah. We, we, you know, there's nothing
0: in our doctrine that would say we have to do it that way.
1: Right. Um, and we talk a lot about, you know, we say, well, women, you know, are, you know, elevated and they have these rules and, but are, you know, are men listening to what women have to say? Um, or are they only speaking to other women? Um, and so I think, you know, this was a conversation I actually just had with my bishopric. You know, are we allowing, are we encouraging elders quorum to use talks given by women in their lessons?
0: That's a great idea.
1: Um, are we asking men to speak on talks given by women in general conference during a sacrament meeting? Um, instead of just assigning it to women. Um,
0: well, my favorite talk, honestly, was Sharon Eubank's talk oh, from the last wow. general conference, by the way. If that's not your
1: favorite talk, then just get out. <laughs> um, because it was such an was incredible talk. talk. Um, but yeah, but I worry that sometimes men don't necessarily, you know, take as much credence in the words of women because it's not for them. Um, I mean, I read priesthood Session and I can look at it and say, you know, here's something that is not necessarily for me, but that doesn't mean I can't find something valuable in it. Um, but especially talk given in general conference, you know, it has the word "general" in it for a reason. Um, are we are we listening to those? Um, and I hope that as a church we can change at an institutional level. You know, some of the le- women leadership roles and giving them a little bit more leadership over the entire congregation and we we talk a lot about being equal and equal partners and that's very very important but we get uncomfortable with women being in charge and but we're not uncomfortable with men being in charge and you know why is that and we need to examine really why we all of a sudden feel uncomfortable and you know i believe that even um, that if a woman is set apart to do a calling, she has the necessary priesthood keys. She needs to do that calling. So it's not a matter of having priesthood authority because she has it. If she's been set apart, it comes down to culturally, why do we not want to listen to women? And I think you know, that's something that we just need to be examining within ourselves. And you're not going to come up with the reason right away. And, you know, there might be some things that you need to work through, um, but really just be thinking about that. Um, And then the second thing that I think will help the role of women in the church a lot is just listening to each other's stories and be willing to accept them, whether it's something you've experienced yourself or not. Um, I hear especially women say to other women, well, I've never felt you know, looked down on or ignored or unimportant in the church. So therefore, your experience isn't true or valid or you're being dramatic or you just don't have enough faith. Instead of saying, you know, I see your experience and I, you know, while I may have never felt that, I'm sorry that you have felt that. And then what can we be doing to make sure that you don't feel that way again and other people don't feel that way?
0: I love that one. I think that's both of those are very, very helpful. We could just cut the pod podcast <laughs> right there. I love the examples you shared, and I remember an ex, I remember going to a training meeting, and I and I didn't come up with this my own, but I don't know who conducted, and I'm thinking it may have been um, Elder Ballard via remote, or we watched something he said, but he talked about you know we sit in ward council, and I was the bishop at the time, and. I would have the primary president comment on primary president things, but he said, he said, well, why not have the primary president comment on elders things? Right. She may have some, re, you know, that isn't just her, she's in ward council to have a voice as the ward. It's not just, and so I started to, you know, and I'm not perfect this space, but I remember and we, of course, in a singles ward didn't have primary, but I remember asking the Relief Society president quite a bit for a ward issue or even an elders quorum issue. Right. And I recognized that she often would have a perspective, even though it was the elders quorum, that was very helpful to the whole ward mm-hmm. making a good decision. And so that really is consistent with some of the things you shared. And I think of Elder Oaks's talk where, and maybe you know this talk better than I do, where he talks about setting apart women and they, they, you know, they operate under priesthood authority due to do their calling. And right. he talks about women working in the, in the initiatory performing, mm-hmm. I think a priesthood ordinance Yeah, um, working under the, you know, as a set apart temple worker, I guess he said they don't hold the priesthood, but they're authorized to use the priesthood. Right. And you, yeah, may, he said, I, you he, may know that talk better than I he do. He says
1: something along the lines of, you know, if that's not the priesthood, then I don't know what it, you know, what is the priesthood. And that was really, that really was that stuck a with good me. talk for you, or a, um, I really liked that part of that talk,
0: like part of that talk,
1: um, because I think it is important. We have such, and I haven't figured this out, and I don't, and I'm something I'm working on, and we have just very, I think, sometimes incorrect views of what the priesthood is. Um, and I won't, you know, get fully into that, but because I don't have the answers, um, but really, you know, thinking about, okay, well, what, what really is the priesthood and what really is the power of God, you know? I think, um, I think of like priesthood blessings. For me, I, I enjoy getting a priesthood blessing because it's a very physical and tangible way for God to speak to me. But I also don't think that I have any less authority to go to God and ask those same questions and get the same answers as a woman. Um, it's just hard. That's something that he has given us as humans, or I should say, our heavenly parents. I believe they both have given us as humans the access to you know physically hear um, or see what it is that they want for us. They would give us those same answers if we went to them in prayer, but sometimes it's just harder for us to accept them. Um, And I have the same authority to ask for that um, as a woman, but just sometimes I need that physical, tangible connection.
0: I like that. And I come back to what our doctrine is, Shelby. Our doctrine is personal relationship with heavenly parents. And, I think of also, and I was listening to a talk from Sherry Eubank, she gave it Fair Mormon a few years ago, and she talked about our doctrine is heavenly father, heavenly mothers, equal co-creators. But she says sometimes our practice doesn't match our doctrine. And she gave the example, we look at a mission president and his wife as equal and having both really difficult jobs, but we don't have vocabulary for her. So right. we call her the mission president's wife. And we all kind of recognize that's not probably, so that's an example of our practice not matching our doctrine. Right. And that was helpful for me just to see, you know, a pair, a way to sort of understand we have work to do um, mm-hmm. and to fully match our doctrine. Right. That, you know, and I hear, which is pretty unique, the idea that we have equal co-creator heavenly parents. That's pretty powerful doctrine. Right. More thoughts on this subject or... Um, what you tried to accomplish as a Relief Society president, a singles ward. We're here in downtown Salt Lake, so you are in a ward, a YSA ward, that I assume no one's living at home and everybody's very transient.
1: Right. Um, yeah, so I was a uh, Relief Society president for two years, and, and I, I got the calling, and I was actually very excited by it, um, which I hope that people you know i I was you know obviously nervous, and you want to do a good job and um but I hope that when people get callings that they are excited by them and if they're not excited by them, then you know examining why that is, and um this isn't what you asked, but you know I am somebody that thinks it's okay to you know say no to callings and have that conversation with your bishop of um you know I need to say no to this right now. And here's why. And oftentimes, you know, that was why you were called to that because you needed to be able to have that conversation. Um, you know, whether it's something um I know somebody who was had a calling, was called to something in the stake and turned it down because she felt like she really needed to be in her ward. And she felt really lonely and wanted to be making connections in the ward. And she never would have had that conversation with her bishop. She wouldn't have gone to the bishop and said, you know, I'm lonely. I need a calling that helps me connect to the ward. Um, But because she got that stake calling, she was able to have that conversation. And so that, you know, she really felt like that was the, that was why that was a, Revelatory calling was to have that conversation. Um, so I don't ever think that people should, you know, just always say yes to any calling. And you know, if you're not excited by it or you're not ready to take that on, you can say no, and it's okay.
0: Just a comment. There's a, a, um, the longer I serve, the more I wanted to sort of have for major callings a preliminary discussion with the person. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it would help me go to the Lord and make a more informed decision if I knew more about the potential calling. And so sometimes I would talk to people and say, we're exploring a calling for you in the ward. Um, t- just tell me more. And totally I think at times I even told the person what the calling was. I uh-huh. felt like, well, that's okay in our doctrine that I could well, share with somebody a calling I'm thinking about. And I'm just looking to Understand how they feel about this so I can go to the Lord to make a more informed decision. Because right. often I would learn stuff in that kind of exploratory interview that really helped me make a, a really informed decision.
1: Right. And then you're not going to them in this moment if we want to extend this calling to you. And then people feeling like they have to say yes. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think it was President Nelson in the slash conference that said, you know, good revelation comes from good information. And yeah, so you're
0: good at these phrases uh, Shelby. Well,
1: well that one wasn't mine, but that was you're one good that at I
0: remembering just, like,
1: them. because it stuck with me so much that sometimes um
0: yeah we just you expect I we, think it's okay to say no. Yeah. You're and,
1: and we expect the Lord just to give us revelation and sometimes you know they will tell us to do something that we have no idea why but most of the time it's up to us to make a good decision and then they will affirm or you know, deny that decision. And, um, and we can't just, we have to use our brains. That's why we have them.
0: I like that. So you've got this huge calling that's yeah. how, and we're just, how do you, um, what feelings did you have of what you wanted to do as you're excited for this calling?
1: So the word that I was over, um, was very young and, um, a lot of students, a lot of international students, um, a lot of people who you know, are the only members in their family or, you know, their family just joined the church a few years ago. Um, and then they were moving a lot. So I would not get the opportunity to really get to know a lot of them before they would move on to a new place. And I felt very stressed and worried that I wasn't doing enough to, you know, get to know all these girls and know all their names and all their problems before they moved in three months. Um, which was just an impossible,
0: it's
1: an impossible task. Um, and so I really had the impression that I just needed to do what I can with them in the time that they are here. Um, I wanted to maybe present them with some ideas And perspectives that were different than things that they had heard um in their, you know, in their homewards. I wanted to start pushing them a little bit to think about things differently. Um, and ask those questions and confront, you know, doubts that they've had. Um, I wanted them to feel my biggest goal was to make sure that when they were in relief society, they felt loved and affirmed. Um, and that they felt like that was a place they could ask questions and have comments and ideas. And it was amazing in the things that came out of a lot of these lessons when you created an environment where people felt comfortable sharing. Um, and you know that was my goal. I was never i wanted to I never wanted to be the one teaching. I wanted to facilitate a discussion that would allow people to. And that's why I encourage all of my teachers to do, you know, create a place where people can discuss. And if it goes off of the topic, that's okay sometimes. You know, that may be where it needs to go. And, you know, recognizing, you know, when it's going off the rails and when it's going to where, you know, people need it to go. Um, so my, yeah, my biggest goal was just to make, even in that short amount of time that they may be with us, to help them at least feel that I loved them and that the Lord loves them and they had value and they were important and they were full contributing members of the church and not just in a holding pattern until they get married. Um, I think that's a really big issue within YSA wards. Um, you know, they had things to contribute and they had value and they had, Um, the Lord loves them as they were right in that moment. Um, another big concern that I had with them was, um, encouraging them to have healthy relationships and what does healthy, what do healthy relationships look like? Whether that's a romantic relationship, a friendship, a familial relationship, how do you set boundaries? How do you, um, I could talk about that all day. Um, but how do you set good habits now in your young adolescence, young adulthood um, for good, healthy relationships that will you can apply to any relationship you're in and will benefit you for the rest of your life?
0: I love that. And so, uh, I, there's a few, some really good nuggets there. Um, I did a podcast with a woman, um, she just talked about she's gay and she just, and she's going to stay in the church and she just feels like this isn't plan B because plan A didn't work out. This is right. plan A. Right. And as I've listened to more YSAs talk about YSA culture, that a lot of them are turned off, uh, with the get married now culture mm-hmm. and sort of going to church and hearing lots of emphasis on marriage. And I didn't really pick that up too much. Um, and so I'm kind of looking back at my YSA assignments and as if we do that. I think, yeah, a lot of YSAs get married, but I think I wanted to create a culture going backwards of you're complete now. Right. And you're worthy now and you're a whole person now and you just can't live your life that I'll be complete once I'm married. And I don't think that takes getting married off the table. It's just that that's probably the way God would want you to feel. And so right. I think I would want to create a culture in a YSA ward um, of coming to Christ and get closer with God and not necessarily this is a place that reminds you you're not married because that can be pretty frustrating to a lot of YSAs. Yeah. And I love that then you taught these skills of communication and boundaries and developing good relationships. And what a wonderful thing to do at a YSA level. Sister Osler did say, I, I always call her Sister Osler in front of the YSA. She says it's a lot better to wish you were to be married and wish you were single yeah. than to be single and wish you were married. And so she kind of wanted to slow down that too.
1: Yep. Well, I think a lot of times we, we talk a lot about, you know, get married. And I do think that we've, we've in most of the YSAs that I've been in, we've backed off a little bit from that. But we haven't filled that with how do you have just healthy relationships? Um, because I, you know, I think that it is important to encourage people to, um, just connect with people like that's, we're not here to be isolated. Um, and that re- those relationships will look lots of different ways. Um, but encouraging people to make connections and learn from each other, um, whether that's a romantic relationship or just a friendship or, you know, whatever. Um, so I think we can kind of fill that void with encouraging that. And then, you know, marriages and healthy relationships come out of that. Um, but something that I've always been very frustrated with is, you know, they say, get married, get married, get married, and, and then trust the Lord. And, you know, and if you are both righteous, then it'll work out. I'm like, that's not how this works. Agreed. Um, I mean, I am by no means the expert personal expert in relationships But I've observed enough to know that it takes, you know, it shouldn't be. My dad said the other day, um, you know, it's hard. What did he say? It's um, hard work, but it's work that you enjoy doing. Um, You know, if you're to the point where it's tedious and you hate it and you're miserable, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Um, But it's supposed to be, you know, work. It's supposed to be work, but it's not supposed to be hard. That's what he said. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I think that's just relationships in general. Um, but yeah, we need to encourage people to be connecting and learning from each other and teaching them how to do that and using, using the science. There's so much you know, amazing you know, secular information out there about how relationships work um, that we just don't use because we just turn to, well, trust the Lord. And if you're both righteous and keeping your covenants, it'll work out. And we need to be giving people practical information that will really help them instead of just read your scriptures and pray together and go to the temple and it'll be happily ever after.
0: I really agree with that. And I, I, you know, I've heard sometimes the YC Bishop uh, released and sort of, in just a hallway conversation, even quote the number of marriages they've had in the ward. And I never would, I thought that was great. And I think that still is fine if someone wants to track that, but I think the priority shouldn't be if I'm a leader in a YSA ward to measure my success by the number of marriages in the ward. Right, Just like you
1: don't measure your mission by (laughs) baptisms. You
0: should measure it by helping your ward members come unto Christ, um, live the teachings of our church, be on the covenant path, But I think part of what should happen, in why I say word, is some of the things you're talking about is how to develop um, meaningful, authentic relationships, communication skills. That's an awesome thing to talk about, and to have you know multiple subjects because I think you've got to be pretty multidimensional. You've got to have good spiritual skills, but good you know communication skills Mm -hmm. um, to have effective marriage and effective relationships. Talk in this last little bit if you're ready to go on, because you've got yeah. good content, just what do you do at KSL?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm a producer, um, and I, so I am a producer of two shows. Um, basically, I uh, put together the content for the shows. Um, so I pick the stories, um, I write scripts, I um, figure out the best way to put the anchors on our set to help tell the story. Um, so is that you know with is that using video, is that using sound? Is that using graphics? You know where do they stand um, on the set? because we have a pretty good sized set with lots of different options um, that will help people understand this story and get the information that they need. Um, I work on a the Sunday edition with Doug Wright at nine o'clock on KSL, if you want to watch, um, right before music and the spoken word. Um, and my goal with that show, and that's kind of my baby right now is to, um, help people. It's a political talk show, um, but to help people kind of maybe get some different perspectives than what they're hearing, um, all the time and bringing new faces in and, um, I'm still, I don't succeed at that all the time. And I'm working, that, that's something that I'm working on. Um, and really breaking down a lot of these issues. Um, people, a lot of people say, you know, I'm not interested in politics. And you don't have to be interested in politics, but you do need to be interested in what's going on in the community around you. Um, and, you know, what are people struggling with? And what are... Elected officials doing to ease those burdens, or are they making them harder on people and um, and really recognizing that, and um, I often say that the role of politics is always to make life better for people, and then we just do disagree on how to do that. If your goal isn't to make life better for people, you're not doing politics. you're just being self-serving at that point. Um, but so I want to help people understand some of these complex issues and break them down into ways that is easier to understand and maybe hear some perspectives that they haven't heard before. So I do that by um, booking guests and bringing people on the show that you know are a little different or just maybe have a different perspective. Um, and I am so fortunate to get to work with Doug Wright, who just is like this wealth of institutional knowledge. That's why I said I wanted to do this show is because he just has been around for so long um, and just knows so many different things. And, and he's really helped me see a lot of perspective, too, because um, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of people my age. And there have been a lot of times where he said, I think he even said this with you on the podcast, you know, or on the episode that you guys were on, um, you know, we look we want a lot of change to happen, but we've also made so much progress. And specifically talking about LGBTQ issues, but just in general, we have made a lot of progress. And there's so much more to be made, and we need to not become complacent in that. But he's helped me realize, like, okay, we are, we are improving, and we are getting better. Um, so that's what. So that's you kind guys of my. Are a
0: great team.
1: It's so fun. And he, I mean, he lets me basically do what I want. And I say, this is what we're going to do. And he says, all right, let's do it. Um, Which is fun. Um, And then, so I just, I love news and um, informing people and helping people understand different perspectives. And that's why I do what I do.
0: It's really cool. Thanks for being on the podcast, Shelby. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, and give them your Twitter ID again? In your yeah. last thoughts,
1: um, I think I mean my biggest, I guess, bearing my testimony. I guess of, um, you know, our, we have heavenly parents—a heavenly father and a heavenly mother—who just love us so much. Um, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I think of how much my parents love me. Um, and then just amplify that is so incomprehensible. Um, And, you know, they understand there's so many things that um, we go through and we try to explain to people, um, but you can't explain it fully without explaining every other, you know, trauma in your life or whatever. And they understand all of that. Um, And they understand where you're coming from and exactly why you're thinking or feeling the way that you are in that moment. Um, And they love you just as you are. And they don't want to change you. They want to help you grow, but they don't want you to change. Um, I think that that's a really important distinction to remember. We all have room to grow, but we are who we are. And it takes all kinds. and I, I hope that if, if something that I said resonated with you or you have questions or that you feel comfortable reaching out to me um, at or Shelby Hintsey is my Twitter handle. Um, I'd love to have these conversations and talk more with people. I think that's the only way that um, change happens is to have these tough conversations. I hope it made you a little uncomfortable. Because if I didn't, then I didn't serve my purpose. But um, yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Shelby Hensy. did I say that right? Shelby Hensy? thank you for being on the podcast. And I think, I do think of um, the mission of Christ. And if I lived in his day, probably make me feel a little uncomfortable. Right. Um, And that was part of the growth that I hopefully, as I listened to Christ, I would have looked internally and saw how he can grow and how some of the things that he challenged in society were things that needed to be challenged. So I think you're doing a great job and thank you so much. There's so many golden nuggets. You're way more, you know, our prayer has been answered, just so many helpful things and you have an incredible voice and it's so, I'm glad that this podcast is getting your voice out broader, but I would guess that over your life that your, your voice will continue to be heard. It's a needed voice. And you have a wonderful perspective on many issues that can help us do better and help heal and bring hope. So thank you, thank you Shelby Hinsey, for being on a podcast. The ep- <laughs> Sorry, I'm mumbling now, on our Listen, Learn, and Love podcast. Thank you.